0: Thank you. Thanks guys sorry we're a few minutes late Um, thanks for all turning up on this really cold morning and super early Um, I also wanted to acknowledge that we have some people joining us on webinar for the first time so hopefully it's all going to work out well but um, if not we'll live and learn and move on from it Um, before I go on I just wanted to um, first of all acknowledge uh, my colleague researchers who have been involved in the hand hub so Susie mentioned that it was a multidisciplinary team Um, there was occupational therapy involved as well as rehab medicine um, and physiotherapy as well so Prof Galea, Prof Khan, um, Louisa and Aladdin were all instrumental um, that's okay all instrumental in setting up the hand hub and uh, publishing the paper as well. Um, We won't take any questions during the presentation primarily because the webinar people may want to ask questions as well so um, at the end of the presentation hopefully we'll have 10 or 15 minutes spare for lots of questions. Can everyone hear me at the back of the room? Am I loud enough? Because I can project more. So what I'll go through in today's presentation is uh, some background information, some stroke statistics, which we all probably know because most of us here work in a neuro background, but we'll just do a bit of a refresher on that. Uh, What the research is saying about neuroplasticity um, and what the research is also saying about emerging technologies. And then we'll go through the hand hub study uh, that had the question around whether emerging technologies can enhance upper limb outcomes. I'll go through uh, the results, the overall results and describe it in a bit more detail with one particular case study. And then I'll also spend a bit of time talking about the research practice gap. Uh, We mentioned before that I've just finished my PhD after a million years um, and my area of interest is really looking at how allied health professionals can overcome this research Research practice gap and, and we really used a lot of the findings from my PhD with our hand hub study. So looking at how we can engage allied health clinicians to uh, produce research and consume research and make it sustainable because it's really hard trying to change practice and certainly if we're talking about emerging technologies it's not a matter of just putting some stuff into a practice like putting a robot there and you know crossing your fingers and hoping it's going to change things for patients and for clinicians so I'll go through how we did it how we made it affordable and how we made it sustainable. So for those of you who are thinking about introducing emerging technologies, if you're a manager, if you're a clinician, I hope that you can leave with some really useful handy hints about what to do in your own practice. All right, so Stroke, Um, we know in developed countries that it remains the leading cause of disability Um, and in third world countries or developing countries it still remains one of the most um, highest or most common causes of death. In Australia there's nearly half a million people who are living with stroke and surprisingly nearly a third of them are under the age of 65. So it's not uh, a disease or a disorder that's just for elderly people. And certainly I know in my clinical practice, we see lots of younger people coming through and I'll show those statistics later on. Patients who are presenting to an acute hospital service with a stroke, more than two thirds of them have an upper limb impairment. So nearly 70%. When we look at those patients six months down the track, 50% of them continue to have a non-functional upper limb. So we know that um, those that actually have a period of time in rehabilitation, most of them, four out of five, will leave with ongoing upper limb difficulties. And there's lots of reasons for why this happens. This is from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, going through some data around uh, disability and what patients report as having the greatest impact on their quality of life. And if you have a look at the top four, most of them involve the upper limb. So restriction in physical activities or work, incomplete use of the feet or legs, incomplete use of arm or fingers, and difficulty gripping or holding things. We also know from research that upper limb dysfunction following a stroke um, has a high correlation with anxiety, poorer perception of quality of life, and and depression so as somebody who's worked in stroke rehab for quite a few years I understand the challenges to providing upper limb rehabilitation in the first instance there's a lot of tasks that can be done with the non impaired upper limb so what we find in rehabilitation is that we pretty quickly move to a compensatory approach I mean, we've got very limited uh, length of stay now in subacute services, so it's not surprising that we do in the first couple of weeks look at that compensatory approach. And from the patient's perspective, I guess they're looking to be independent as much as they can. If that means using the unaffected upper limb, then that's what they often revert to. The problem with that is that we move into a learned non-use pattern really quickly. And certainly from a community-based perspective, a lot of the patients that I see come in through the door have unmasked potential. They've got these learned non-use patterns. So it's not so much that we're looking at an impairment level that can't be remediated. It's more that they haven't had the opportunity to actually practice and use the impaired upper limb. And so we end up with some cortical changes because of a learned non-use. The upper limb is complex. Who doesn't know that? Anybody who's done upper limb rehab would know it's never a matter of that um, upper limb presentation being about one level of impairment. It's very rarely just about motor weakness or just about spasticity. Often we're seeing multiple impairments. We might see that there's increased tone, uh, loss of strength, um, sensory changes, perceptual changes. So it's really a complex field to work in. And often we can have patients with cognitive impairment and that certainly affects rehab outcomes. Being able to get your patients to carry through with your rehab recommendations day day to day um, can also impact on their progress. Then we have the organisational factors. Um, Those of us who work in rehab would be aware that the length of stay is just reducing all the time. I've worked for a number of years and I've seen it come down seven days, eight days at least. Um, time constraints, we're all time poor, you know, we all have a lot of patients. Um, being able to rehab the upper limb takes a long time. It takes a long time for your a community-based patient or, is, or even for in, um, inpatients. And time is something that clinicians don't really have a lot of. What we do know is that the upper limb, the impaired upper limb following a neurological event, does have the capacity to change. Um, Neuroplasticity, it's been in the media and it's been really popular probably for the last five years or so in terms of um, mainstream media. Neuroplasticity refers to the capacity of the brain to reorganise itself. It doesn't necessarily happen automatically, and I'll go through in a minute the the factors that can really encourage neuroplasticity. Um, What we see in front of us here is probably the classic uh, experiment showing the outcomes of an enriched environment so we see that we've got uh, some monkeys there on the left and the one on the far left has been presented with a really challenging task this is food related most animals respond to food-based training sometimes humans do too Um, but we see this monkey on the far left he's got a really complex task so he's trying to reach the food from a really small, uh, small, shallow sort of um, aperture. So he has to really work to get to the food. He's got to actually turn his hand and he has to establish a much more refined grip than his buddy in the next cage. So in the next cage uh, it's a much larger sized food well and you really can just do a gross, gross grip. Just grab the food, bring it in and eat it. And imaging shows uh, for these monkeys some real differences in terms of cortical representation of the digits. And what we see is that the monkey on the left who really had to work hard to get his food had much greater representation of the digit on his um, cortical mapping in comparison to his buddy on the other side. So what we know that is that a challenging task actually results in different changes in the brain. And that's really important for us to keep in mind when we're working with our patients. So we know that criteria is important. So we've got some evidence, not just from animal studies, but certainly from uh, the body of evidence that's growing from human studies, to say that there are some particular factors that are really important to get the best outcomes for upper limb rehab. First of all, we've got intensity. And this is the kind of sexy topic in rehab at the moment. Uh, We'd spent a lot of years thinking that it was about um, enriched environments or um, coming to rehab five days a week. And I will talk about frequency in a moment. But what we're finding is that it's actually the intensity of practice uh, that our patients are undergoing. So intensity refers to the number of repetitions per minute. So it's not so much about the patients coming in and sitting there for an hour and doing 10 reps it's about how many reps per minute our patients can actually achieve in rehab and we don't know yet in terms of research what the magic number is but they're suggesting it's a couple of hundred reps per session so intensity is really critical probably more so than frequency Challenge we saw from our little monkey buddies before how important challenge is so it's not enough for our patients to uh, come in and practise an activity that, that they've done a thousand times before, that's kind of a little bit too easy for them. And they're not really having to uh, cognitively problem solve or use their upper limb in a different way. So the challenge is really important. We don't wanna make it too challenging because failure is uh, a barrier for some of our patients, but you wanna make it challenging enough that they really need to work from a motor perspective to be able to achieve that movement or work on that movement. And frequency. So we've got intensity at one end of the spectrum and then we've got frequency at the other end. So ideally we want our patients to be coming in you know, at least two or three times a week. And certainly if you look at the recommendations made by the National Stroke Foundation, they suggest roughly 60 minutes of practice, physical practice for upper limb impairment each day. So you know, that's an ideal to aim for. Um, I know we haven't been able to meet that um, in our public health facility, which is how we came to be uh, looking at emerging technologies. So when we think about neuroplasticity and the factors that we need to get the best outcomes for our patients, so we need the frequency, we need the intensity, we need the challenge, but we also are aware of the reduced length of stay, the competing priorities all clinicians have. Um, the fact that we're so busy, um, our patients are only there for well, 19 days is our length of stay in our service. So how do we actually get those two to marry up? How can we provide the intensity given our limited resources that we've just talked about? And that's how we came, uh, came up with the idea of the hand hub. And our question with the hand hub was whether we could use emerging technologies in a sustainable and affordable way to enhance upper limb function. Let's start by talking about what emerging technologies are, because sometimes there can be a little bit of confusion and people think that robotics is the same as gaming, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what the difference is with each one of them. So in the top left hand side there with the little kid with his arms up in the air, that's pretty much your level one gaming technology and there's no immersion, so there's no, um, it's 2D. So all you see is this flat uh, sort of screen, there's no depth to the movement. You get the frequency and the engagement with playing, but you're not going to get the same experience of moving into something, you're just kind of moving across it. And we see that one most commonly in Australian healthcare settings. So that's things like your Wii, Um, MITI, the Move It to Improve It program, um, and a lot of the gaming technology that we use in the hand hub. The next one that we see in the bottom right hand corner is non-immersing virtual reality technology. So that's the next step up and what we've got is somebody's got some gloves or sometimes it can be some glasses and it gives you the extra dimension, it gives you depth. So now you've got a 3D environment. You're not fully immersed in it, we'll go on to what that means but you can if you're reaching for something and you're playing it will give you a sense of depth that you're moving into something and we've got that. Then we've got immersive VR technology that we see up in that right hand side. We don't really see a lot of that here in Australia but it is more common in the States with veterans rehabilitation. And it's got some really fabulous research, some really interesting outcomes. Um, And that's where you've got the headset, you've got the gloves, and you're fully in that environment. Um, You know, you can sense yourself like walking into that 3D environment. And then the bottom side, uh, the lady in the wheelchair, is robotic therapy. So that's electromechanical devices that usually can provide full compensation um, as well as gravity-assisted movements. And we We're seeing a little bit of that here in Australia. It's probably a bit cost prohibitive at the moment. Um, And I'll talk about how we can overcome some of that. Um, And we do actually have that robot in our hand hub. We didn't pay for it. I feel like I I should say that. But I'll talk about how we actually came to have it. Um, And that's really quite useful for patients with high levels of impairment. So what do we know about emerging technologies in terms of evidence at the moment? I'll go through some of the evidence that we've gathered, but there has been a Cochrane review, and it's just been updated probably about 18 months ago and they've looked at 34 trials with a total of just over a thousand patients. So we've got some growing evidence um, there for emerging technologies. And they looked at a few different types of technologies. They looked at robotics, um, they looked at VR technology, they didn't look a lot at just your basic gaming technology, sort of more upper level um, technology that I described in the previous slide. Um, And they found some statistically significant uh, changes in terms of upper limb function and and importantly ADL. So they've found some improvement in strength of the upper limb using technologies um, and also range and they've also found that patients who participated in this sort of therapy had a higher level of independence with um, their ADLs. And of course these studies were comparing to conventional therapy. Now, what's conventional therapy? I mean, if we went to each of the studies, you could probably criticise a little bit around how they controlled that. Nonetheless, they have found that it is more likely that the patient population treated with robotic therapy or with emerging technology therapy do fare better. So that's heartening to know, especially for those of us who were looking at introducing some of this technology. All right. our question, I talked about it a couple of slides ago, was around can we use emerging technologies in our clinic? How are we gonna do it? Um, is it going to be effective? Is it going to be affordable? So I'm gonna go through how we established the hand hub, um, how we collected data and what we actually found. So we launched it in 2014 and we started off with three pieces of equipment. big, um, borrowed and steeled. Stole literally, like we we had um, no funding, we had no grants, we had no extra EFT, so we resourced it with what we had in-house. Three pieces of gaming technology that we had, we had a giant mouse, um, and I'll show you the pictures in a moment, we had a, a bilateral joystick device, and we had a SABO Rejoice. The SABO Rejoice we got for free. Somebody had been using it uh, for some spinal rehab research and they didn't want it anymore, so I snaffled it. I said, I'll have that. Um, And the other two pieces of equipment, we were doing a bit of quid pro quo. We were doing some trialing for the company that were developing it, so we got to use it. That's what I mean, that we, we literally had no money. So that's how we made it sustainable. We set it up as graded workstations. We ran it as a group. So with the graded workstations, we had um, patients who uh, were unable to move against gravity, would start at a certain station, and they could work their way up to a next station where uh, patients who had some anti-gravity movement, you know, could work on, on their function. And then to the higher level Sabo Rejoice, where you could practice uh, fine motor grip, etc. Uh, unilateral and bilateral options, which were really important. Um, And we also made some partnerships with external stakeholders. Like I mentioned, uh, the company that was trialling some equipment, we put our hands up to trial it. Uh, We partnered with a university and that was a really great partnership and that's something that health services can really, um, really think about doing. Uh, And I'll go through how we went about establishing that partnership. I think this is the video, if I'm not wrong. All right, so this is the equipment that we had in there, the giant mouse, which is really as simple as what it means. It's a big mouse that you can have a patient with who has uh, hypertonicity, so they might have um, a really tight um, tight hand. You can take off uh, the bottom part of the device so they can just sit on it like this. Um, Or patients who are flaccid, um, it's just a really great starting point because you can set your patients up on a table. They're supported in terms of their shoulder. Um, They can use it bilaterally to get themselves started in the movement uh, or they can use it unilaterally. That's the joystick device. The joystick sits in a bilateral bar so for patients they can use that bilaterally or they can do an active assist uh, grip onto the joystick device. So that's really good if patients have got some some anti-gravity movement even if they don't they could actually just rest it on their lap and they can use a bit of gravity to help them and this is the sabo rejoice um, which really can be used for patients with low or high function so you can you can even use it if you're retraining some balance so it can be used uh, standing or sitting it can uh, essentially any sort of movement that you want to practice you can do so with the Sabo Rejoice so wrist flexion extension external rotation um, you know you, there's just any sort of movement that you like so that's a really fantastic device that that was the one that um, we actually got for free because somebody wasn't using it anymore and the armio power which came to us probably about 12 months after we started the hand hub So I'm just going to show you a video, and I'll apologise in advance because it's a video of me, which is really gross, but it just goes through, shows some, some people actually practising on the equipment, which is kind of cool. The hubs a new initiative that we started about three months ago. And what it involves is the use of virtual reality technology to assist in rehabilitating the upper limb. We've got uh, a number of pieces of equipment, uh, including this one, the Rejoice, the AbleX, and also the giant mouse. And what we're doing is working with patients to get better upper limb outcomes using games that actually engage their, their thought processes This gentleman is quite interesting because he had a pre-existing hand condition and on top of that he's recently experienced a stroke. So we've got a fellow with a couple of fingers missing and also some motor control issues related to the stroke. We've been using the Sabo Rejoice to retrain in particular grip. It's really interesting watching how he's building up his his grip through using uh, the grip mechanism on the Sabo Rejoice. The other interesting thing is watching how he shifts his weight from left to right and also shifts his attention across the screen. The hand hub is a long-term research project where inviting all patients with an upper limb impairment following a neurological incident. So that could be stroke, it could be tumour removal. Preliminary results are extremely encouraging. Okay. So when we introduced the HAND Hub, we wanted to collect data. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. So we we very much took a practice-based evidence approach. And rather than going down the pathway of, say, an RCT, where we had really stringent uh, inclusion or exclusion criteria, we wanted it to reflect what you're seeing in rehab. So our criteria for acceptance into the HAND Hub are really broad because that's what you get. That's what walks in through the door. Um, We very rarely get the sort of patient that uh, reflects what you're seeing in RCTs. So our criteria for acceptance into the hand hub was that the patient uh, should be able to follow a one-stage command. So we took some patients with really significant cognitive impairment. Um, And even in the acute setting, I've used some of this technology with patients who are really, really impaired cognitively, and I've had some incredible results, had to have adequate vision because you've got to be able to see the gaming technology and that's pretty much it. So that's really quite different to what you might see with an RCT. Um, But that's really what we see in rehab, these are the sort of patients that are coming to us, they're going to have comorbidities, Um, they're going to have cognitive impairment, they may have perceptual impairment, etc. So we wanted our uh, population that we're collecting data on to really reflect what we're seeing coming in through the door. We wanted them to have a pain-free upper limb. If they were referred to us and they had some sort of a shoulder uh, syndrome or some sort of pain, they would be referred to our medical colleagues for opinion um, before we could take them into the hand hub. Exclusion criteria, uncontrolled epilepsy. You know, obviously we can't have people who uh, might be seizing in a group context. Uh, Serious progressive disease. Having said that, we've had a lot of patients with GBM come through the clinic with some nice results. Uh, Severe receptive aphasia, we need them to be able to follow a one-stage command. Severe cognitive deficits. So when they were referred into the hand hub, we take a whole heap of baseline assessments. So they'd see uh, the OT or the physio and then a rehab consultant. And the assessments that we used uh, were things like the wolf motor function test to give us some baseline uh, motor ability. Uh, Cognition was assessed using the MOCA, the Montreal uh, Cog Assessment. We assessed functional upper limb use using the ARMA, which goes through some questions around the last seven days and how well uh, the patient has uh, been using their upper limb, their perception of how uh, impaired their upper limb is. And we'd set goals with the patient, so we'd use the GAS as well. The intervention was provided in a group context. And I think that really surprises people because there's this perception that technology really needs to be used one-on-one. We couldn't afford to use it one-on-one. We had to do it in a group context. As I said, we didn't have additional funding. So we had to be a little bit clever in how we were going to use our resources. Um, And hands down, that's probably the best decision we made. And I think in retrospect, we're lucky we didn't have funding and try and do it one-on-one because I don't think it would have been as successful as it was. Patients had to attend a 60-minute session, and ideally we wanted them in three times a week to be able to meet the frequency requirement. And there was graduated difficulty. So we were really on top of patients who we saw were changing. So they weren't stuck on the giant mouse and there for all 12 of their treatments. If we saw that they progressed, we'd move them on. And that's really important. Um, There also has to be functional training as well, so I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, emerging technologies are quite impairment focused. You're going to get the repetition, you're going to get the challenge, you'll have the, the intensity and the frequency, but doing this sort of movement for 45 minutes doesn't necessarily mean your patient's then going to be able to hold their cutlery, so there has to be an element of practising functional activities. Whether they do that at home with a home-based program or within your service depends on how you set it up. But I I really need to encourage that uh, you take the impairment-specific training and that you practise functionally with the patients. And then we had post-intervention assessments immediately after the 12 uh, sessions that the patients had, after their four weeks of treatment, and also at the six-month mark so we could see around sustainability. We'll go through the results. So the results have been published and it's only on the first 92 patients. The last time I had a look, we had over 300 patients come through. So we need to look at the data again because we've continued to collect data, which in itself is a miracle because allied health, we're just not good at collecting data. And, and I, I feel like I can say that because I'm an allied health professional um, and we've kept collecting data. So just being able to change that alone has been just you know incredible. Okay, so a snapshot of the first 92 patients that we assessed. Average age 55.6, which really surprised me because I I mentioned earlier on in our stroke stroke statistics that uh, roughly a third are under the age of 65, but I sort of had the perception that our patients are a bit older. Obviously they're not. They're sort of sitting in that that younger catchment. And it might be that our older patients are actually going off to GEM to aged care rehabs more so now than inpatient rehab. Um, The majority had stroke. So that's um, 88% had stroke. But we certainly took in some others there. So we had patients with MS. We had some nice results with them. Um, I mentioned before a few brain tumors, a couple of GBMs, um, a couple post-resection of gliomas, um, and other. I think we had a young bloke with a spinal cord injury as well, a 17-year-old. At presentation, 20% had um, aphasia, 32% had cog deficits, 23% 23% had attention deficits and 20% had perceptual deficits. Um, we didn't really collect a lot of data around the perceptual deficits. I've tried to have a look at the technology itself to see what I could pull from it and that's still something we're working on because I would also say, I'm going to go through some motor results and etc. cetera, but I, I would say, and I'm just speaking anecdotally because I haven't collected data on it, that emerging technologies is probably one of the best ways to remediate perceptual deficits that I've seen but I haven't been able to capture it well enough. So summary of outcome data. So we've got uh, the Ashworth scale, the ARMA, the Wolf motor function test, and also the EQ5D, which is a quality of life measure. On the far right side, you see something called effect size. So what that means is that's a measure of the difference Uh, pre and post. So the level of change that we saw from baseline uh, to our final assessment. Um, A 0.1 score for effect size is pretty small. 0.3 is considered to be moderate. 0.5 and above is considered to be a large effect size. So that's a pretty important number to look at there. So if we have a look at um, the MAS, we saw a moderate change in terms of spasticity. So we saw a reduction, which surprised me because it's not really a target of what we were doing. Uh, The ARMA, which is the assessment tool that I mentioned earlier on, it is a self-reported scale around how well the patient perceives that they're using their impaired upper limb. Um, We saw really large effect sizes for their perception around completing tasks, bilaterally or unilaterally, and their impact on participation. And that's a a really high P-value as well. Um, The wolf motor function test, we saw some significant changes with elbow extension and also with tasks like lifting a pencil, so a tripod grip. So we saw some moderate uh, changes with those two measures. And in terms of uh, quality of life measures, we saw some really significant changes in their perception of their overall health. And that kind of reflects really what we saw as well from the AMA. If you're feeling that you've improved in terms of your participation with your activities, then you're going to assume that you will have an overall improvement in your perception of health and well-being. So there's some really good um, results for the patients that came through. So I wanted to go through a particular case study just to give a bit more detail on some of the outcome measures that we took and this uh, young lady's story. So she was a 35 year old that uh, came to us. She was probably maybe two years down the track she was from regional victoria so she had to travel a good three hours to come to us some serious dedication she had two kids so that was quite a commitment to rehab she'd had a left mca on the background of an ica dissection she'd previously been um, really high functioning very sporty and was also working at a higher level in in an exec role. She was using a single point stick for outdoor mobility, doing okay indoors, right upper limb dysfunction. But I have to say she was one of those patients who when she comes in thinks she can't use her upper limb but had lots of unmasked potential there. Typical disuse, just hadn't really used it at home. A Little bit of executive dysfunction but but doing okay from a cognitive perspective. The goal that she set uh, for her rehab component, for her attendance at the hand hub, she wanted to be able to use her cutlery. Especially when she was going out, she felt a bit embarrassed um, about having to use um, modified or adapted cutlery. And she also wanted to be able to put on makeup. She was right dominant. So she wanted to be able to put on mascara and eyeliner and things like that. That was really important for her. So when she started, um, like I said, she, she actually had uh, quite a lot of movement there, but she really wasn't using her right upper limb at all in function at home. But we were able to actually start her on the bilateral device. She probably moved on to the SABO Rejoice after the second or third session. So she progressed quickly and she was a dream patient. She was one of those patients who does everything you want her to do at home. Um, you know, we don't always get those sort of patients, but um, I was talking to Katie before around engagement. This really engaged her. She really felt like she, she was getting lots of practice. She was getting into it. She, she, she went with the technology and she really ran with it. Um, I trialed some other things at home with her as well. She's, she's the sort of person who you could set up at home and know she was gonna do her one or two hours of practice there. So we moved on to the Sabo Rejoice really quickly, um, and she ended up spending the majority of her time working on movements like pincer grip, um, tripod grip, uh, the opening and closing (coughs) components um, for some deviation movements, all the things that you can do on the Sabo Rejoice. So I'm going to go through some of her results for the wolf motor function test. I'm not sure who uses the wolf motor function test, but I'll just quickly tell you, it gives you two scores. It scores on time to complete the task. The maximum time is two minutes, so 120 seconds. And there's a series of movements that you trial the patients on that progressively get more difficult. We were using the streamlined version of the wolf motor function test with our patients. Um, The second component the patients are scored on is quality of movement. Um, And I really like this assessment um, because it gives us both. Sometimes you've got to slow your patients down to get better quality movement and you can capture that. Um, So TM when she first came to clinic these are her baseline results for the wolf motor function test and this is just the timing component. So it took her 2.8 seconds to get her hand to the table. Doesn't sound like long, that's a really long time. Most people are below one second for that. 4.2 seconds to get her hand up onto a box. 114 seconds to lift a can and it's a very specific grip to lift the can of drink. They're not allowed to do this sort of movement. Um, You have to have a little bit of wrist extension and you've got to approach it in this direction. She couldn't lift a pencil at all for love or money. There's no way she could do that. Reach and retrieve um, is around uh, a weighted item and coming into elbow flexion. So she was able to do that in 2.2 seconds. And folding a towel is really that bilateral movement. So it just took her just over a minute. So following her 12 sessions in the hand hub, these are the changes in time that she had. So one second hand to table, still not hugely fast, but a decent improvement. Um, She was probably twice as fast with hand to box. The biggest change, if we have a look at lifting the can. So, you know, a minute. It's going to be slower than what you and I do, but that's a really big change. So bear in mind, this patient, she wasn't using the right upper limb at home, so she wasn't using it to, to you know, do her drinking or anything, despite being right dominant. So that's a really big change for her. And she could lift a pencil. And that's really important, not because she wanted to be walking around lifting a pencil, but you need that grip to be able to put your mascara and your eyeliner on. So bear in mind what her goals were. You know that she wanted to be able to use cutlery what sort of grip do we use with cutlery and that she wanted to be able to put her makeup on reach and retrieve also improved and so did folding a towel so that's quite significant those improvements so this is around the quality of movement i'm sorry that's a little bit sideways there but it just shows you how it's scored um, one refers to not using the impaired upper limb at all so, you know, that's just kind of sitting there, it might be quite a profound neglect um, or extremely hypertonic. Um, five is really quite normal. So as normal as it can be. Four suggests some compensatory movements or, um, you know, that might be a patient who just does a little bit of hitching as, as they're reaching. So how did TM go? So, hand to table, she scored three, uh, which suggests that she could do the movement um, but there is either some sort of um, effort or some sort of compensatory stuff going on. Lifting a can, she was at one, so she, she really couldn't do it at all. She needed to use the other hand to help, so she did this sort of thing. To be able to lift the can same thing with lifting the pencil she actually couldn't do that at all if you recall i think it was 120 seconds so um, from memory i think she just said oh, i just yeah there's no way i can do it uh, three for reach and retrieve so you know some some effort some unusual sort of patterns there and folding the towel she couldn't do either a lot of that is going to be the, the mis the disuse that we saw when she came in Okay, so hand to table and hand to box. We saw that she improved in speed, there was still effort required. So she was faster, but it wasn't necessarily the most beautiful movement at the end of the day. Lifting a can, really big difference. And I think that this really reflects the the device that she was working on. So she was using the Sabo Rejoice, so we really had a strong focus on more distal sort of components of her upper limb retraining. So she went to a four for lifting a can and a four for lifting a pencil. That is such a big change, a really big change for her. Um, Reach and retrieve stayed about the same and folding towel improved as well. So she was able to do it, but she needed to do a little bit of support with the other upper limb. So quite, quite significant changes. So the armour uh, asks the patient in the last seven days, um, tell us how well you um, have done things like opening a jar, caring for your upper limb, getting things out of your pocket, etc. It's a really functional based um, assessment. It's actually a really lovely assessment to use with your patients. So what did we get here? So unable to do activity is four. So we've got a lot of fours there. So from her perspective, she was unable to open a jar, and she wasn't doing any of these things at home. I have to say that I reckon if I pushed her, she probably could have done some of these things. But from her perspective, she wasn't doing it at home. Picking up a glass, uh, severe difficulty drinking from a cup, severe difficulty brushing teeth, etc. So we can see that she really wasn't using that upper limb um, at baseline at all. And that's following intervention. So. Moderate difficulty to uh, Drinking from a cup, only mild difficulty. Brushing teeth, only mild difficulty. Um, writing on paper, so she was actually able to do some writing as well. So again, some really significant changes. We didn't get to using a key. Um, I think if she had it continued on or had another burst, we would have really been able to get to, to that level of function. From uh, the goal attainment scale, I haven't got the results up there, she was able to use cutlery uh, bilaterally, she could apply her makeup but we needed to build up the grip still on um, the eyeliner and the mascara because they were just too fine. So she made some changes, Um, it wasn't as good as it could be but there were some statistically significant changes for her. So that was an example of one patient story. Um, And before I go into the research practice gap, I wanted to talk to you around some of the patients that we had come through the hand hub. I think again, there's a perception that technology is for young people um, that some of our older patients or clients might not benefit from it and I think I also had that that opinion myself, maybe I was a little bit ageist, I don't know, I, I'd, I was really wondering whether they would engage with it um, and if anything I would say that our older patients probably got more from it or loved it, enjoyed it, engaged with it more than some of our younger patients. Um, I, I'd said that we had like a 17 year old uh, chap who had a spinal cord injury, he thought it was a bit lame some of the games, (laughs) but um, the older population loved it. So we found uh, feasibility in terms of age, it wasn't a barrier, and nor was whether they could speak English or not, surprisingly. So our our catchment, we have quite a high population from a non-English speaking background. It didn't impact on whether they could engage with it or not. They were in there and they were working on it. I, I mentioned that I thought the group context was important, and I think in that setting, they were watching each other and they were you know, wanting to compete a little bit like, what are you doing there? Why are they playing that game? Can I play that game? I can't wait till I get on that. So there was this real, aside from being a reduction in social isolation, I think it really encouraged participation and drove um, more practice. You know, They wanted to be able to do what so-and-so did because it looked good, it looked cool and they were seeing others progress. All right, so research practice gap. Um, I think it's really hard to change clinical practice. It's hard if you're the person trying to introduce something new, and it's hard if you're the person who's receiving the instruction to do something new. And we talked earlier on around some of the barriers. They can be related to the organization. Who's got time to learn something new? It can be really tricky. You're back to back with patients all day. Whether it's private practice or public practice, we are really struggling with competing priorities. There's also clinician-related variables. So learning something new is hard work. We may lack confidence in, well, how am I gonna use this device? I'm not great with computers. Um, I don't have time. I can't be bothered. Why would I even need to collect data? I'm here to be a, a, a clinician. I'm not a researcher. So there's lots of different things that can get in the way for us to be introducing novel or new things like emerging technologies. Um, And I wanted to go through one of the things that I do. I do a fair bit of research at work. Um, One of the things that I do if I want to introduce something new, um, one of the models that I use. This is probably something that we're all familiar with and it's something that uh, the Cochrane Evidence-based group use. Um, It's a theoretical framework to really guide how you're gonna get practice change. All right, so right from the beginning, I knew that I'd need to engage the clinicians, because if I didn't get them on board, there was absolutely no way that anybody was going to collect data. Um, you know, I knew that I needed to get them to own this research project, that it couldn't be something that sat just with medicine and it couldn't be something that sat with me as a research leader saying, all right, I don't want everyone to collect data because there's just no way that was going to happen. So the action research framework really involves your end users right from the beginning. So it looks at, you know, what the problem is, for example. Well, okay, so the problem might be we're not getting great results for upper limb um, outcomes. We know that we want to um, introduce this emerging technology. It looks at how you adapt the knowledge to the local uh, context you prospectively identify barriers and knowledge to use. So what are your barriers? Oh, the you know, the, the area is a problem, it looks bad, there's junk all over the place, um, we can't staff it. So you go in anticipating these barriers and you address them before you even introduce any of the interventions. And we very much use this model um, and we, Obviously we looked at the outcome because I've just presented them, but we consulted right from the beginning with all the clinicians. So they were involved in terms of eligibility criteria, they were involved in terms of assessments, how the groups would set up, um, how our direct access unit would process the referrals. So we had what I would say is a practice-based evidence approach where everyone was engaged rather than just one person coming in doing a study coming out and then it ends because a lot of the times that's what happens and you don't get sustainable practice change and I can tell you now five years later four years later um, the hand is probably one of the most busy clinics you've ever seen so we were successful in getting it to be sustained practice change the good thing about this is you can tweak things as well as you go along You don't go in and expect things to be the way you anticipated initially. Um, Our process changed a lot in the first 12 months and that's okay with this approach. You collect data as you go along, you see what is or isn't working, like okay well that's not working, running the groups at that time, let's change it to run at this time, let's do this with the allied health assistance, let's change our referral processes until we got it to work for us. It had to be context specific. So the aims for us when we first introduced the hand hub were to look at whether it was feasible, to look at whether it was effective, and to look at whether we could change practice. So our approach wasn't an RCT for all the reasons that I mentioned before. RCTs aren't the only approach to research. Um, There's lots of different research that you can do. One thing that we do I think quite well, and certainly we did it with uh, this project, and we've done it since with other projects, is we take a clinical practice improvement approach. And there's some really good research out there in the moment comparing CPI to RCTs and why you might want to take a CPI approach, particularly in rehab, where it's notoriously difficult to control variables. Um, it's, and recruitment just becomes a nightmare, and I've done an RCT um, in rehab. and it failed and the recruitment itself was just um, mind-boggling. So a clinical practice improvement approach, which is what we took with our research, um, what it does is you have pretty broad eligibility criteria to accept them and we went through what I talked about, it was pretty much who walked in the door, We we took them in. But what you do is you systematically and exhaustively collect data. So for all those patients coming in through the door, we collected a lot of data over a long period of time and we're still collecting that data, which is great because we should be collecting data anyway as allied health professionals. So you measure and record all the treatments and interventions um, and what you start to see is some patterns in the data because you've got a lot of data and you end up with hundreds of patients. So our first lot of analysis was at 92 patients. As I said, we're at 300, 400 patients at the moment and you start to get some power then because you've got the sheer numbers to be able to do it. You include your baseline staff. So you include the people who are there treating because they have to be collecting that data as you go along. So it's not um, people coming externally to collect the data and then just leaving. And that's how you ensure the sustainable practice change. So it entails participation with practicing clinicians. And I'm really interested in this model in terms of sustainable practice change because you want to be doing things internally so that you can make sure that 12 months or 18 months down the track, you're still doing it, that you're still collecting the data. And if it's not working, you tweak it and you try something else. So in terms of establishing your own emerging technologies clinic or your own hand hub, thinking about where to start, You don't need a lot of money. So there's this perception that you need a squillion dollars, no grants, no money, no EFT. Since then, we've got grants and we've got some amazing equipment in there, but that was only after we established that it was working. And then people got excited. Then our health service got excited because they weren't to start with. Nobody really wanted a bar of it. So after we collected our data and we started to spruik it and we had a lot of uh, media involvement, we had the Minister for Health come out and launch it, people started to go, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe we can give them some money. So we got some lottery grants and some other bits and bobs um, and we're able to add to it. But we started with three bits of equipment. So you can probably start for maybe a couple of thousand dollars at the most, or you might be able to do a little bit of quid pro quo with different organisations. Data, I cannot tell you how important data is. Data is important for when you do your business case. So if you're starting off with no money and you're just starting off in-house and you're like, well, we're just gonna start with this sort of equipment and you wanna grow it, the most important thing you can do is collect some outcomes. So when you do your business case later on, or when you're applying for philanthropic funding, you can say, you know, these are my case studies, these are the outcomes, I've had 10 patients through, this is what the data shows. And it's not hard to do that, just collect your outcome measures, whether it's the wolf, um, whether you're gonna use the tarju, whether you're gonna use, um, you know, whatever assessment you want to use, Just systematically collect it. Don't be fussed about having blind assessors and all that sort of stuff. You don't need to worry about that. You can do that down the track if you want to randomise and have blind assessors. In the beginning, just collect data on the effectiveness of it, and it means the world when you start to put in business applications, when you start to tell your story. If you can do that from the beginning, you will save yourself a lot of heartache down the track. Think about who you can partner with. So are there external key stakeholders out there? Can you partner with um, other people on your team. Rehab isn't a solitary single discipline exercise. You've got medical colleagues that, that are on board. And I, I know that I've uh, spoken to other health services who, who have gone and done that. They've gone to their head of rehab and said, hey, why don't we get some emerging technologies and collect data? And the head of rehab went, cool, let's do it. So think about who you can actually approach with this idea and come with you know, an idea of well, we're gonna collect data on it and then we're gonna publish because everybody wants to publish. Everybody on the team will be interested in that. Um, universities, researchers, universities, particularly engin- particular engineering departments, are enormously interested in um, health applications for technologies. So nothing to stop you going there and saying, are you guys interested in doing something with us? Universities have money. I don't know if I should be saying that, but they seem to have money to buy stuff. So, and we don't, health does not have any money. It's kind of a partnership made in heaven. We've got um, the patients and they've got the technology and the potential funding. Um, Most importantly, as allied health professionals is recognizing your value in terms of what we offer with emerging technology research. Um, Yes, we have the access to patients. We have the expertise, you know, in upper limb rehab. Um, we have that knowledge. So how, how can you use that if you're going to introduce the hand hub? How can you use that in terms of data collection and your business cases? Um, and again, I would remind you that whilst our hand hub looks you know, pretty swish now, we started with a couple of pieces of equipment. So it's, it's really achievable for most places. All right. So I mentioned around feasibility and staff effectiveness, uh, staff acceptance um, and effectiveness, we've had some really nice results from that. Future directions, um, we've, uh, we're working with nursing staff, our nursing staff are really interested. Once you've got some, some runs on the board, everybody wants to get in there, which is great. So we're looking at now this 24-hour rehab um, experience and setting up a little bit of a satellite area on the ward for patients to be able to practice outside of hours. So that's in process at the moment uh, on our ward. Technology at home, we've tried the technology at home. Um, We did an RCT and it failed. Um, And again, I would say that there's some merit in the group context and coming into rehab. Uh, We've also used this sort of equipment, emerging technology with upper limb amps, with extraordinary success. Who would have thought? So we've published um, a case series on that, Um, and it really helped with uh, patients committing to their prosthetic upper limb uh, retraining. That's it, and I'm happy to take any questions, including any questions from um, our webinar people. Any questions at all? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jen. I work at Worth Hub in Richmond. And yep. I guess my question is just in terms of the feasibility, if you had up to six people in your group at the beginning and you only had one Able X, Able M, yep. and the SABO. Um, how did you I guess split up the time if they were all at the same level for instance yeah so we um, actually had a spreadsheet where at assessment we'd know who needed what sort of equipment so when they were assessed they we took the baseline assessments and we'd make a recommendation around what equipment um, they needed we had some flexibility because I mentioned that with a graded workstation you could use some of the equipment a little bit differently to meet different needs but we would track who needed what and for a period period of time there, we did have quite a wait list, especially for the SABO Rejoice. Mm. Um, so we had to wait list patients who needed that and we had a wait list because the, the clinic itself was really popular. So we'd um, have to track it and then bring them up according to what they needed on this on this Excel spreadsheet. And then, sorry, one more question. Yeah, sure. So in terms of incorporating the functional use, did you do that during the actual session with these? Depended. Not in the group. Uh, Because we were accepting outside of our catchment area, we could only provide group therapy for anybody who wasn't within our catchment area. So the way the funding works is that uh, for most rehab services, uh, publicly funded rehab services, you can only take from your geographical catchment area, uh, which was going to be a problem for us because we wanted to open it up Australia-wide and the only way we could do that is in a group context. So for those patients uh, that were outside of our catchment their functional retraining had to be done at home. So I had handouts okay. and I'm happy to share any of this stuff anybody wants and the handouts I was really clear around this is what you need to practice when you get home. So. I'm assuming that they did practice those things when they got home, and I would say so, looking at the results. For those that were in our catchment area and may well have still been receiving uh, CTS or community-based therapy, they had the opportunity for functional practice because they were in our catchment area and they could have one-on-one. Okay. So, so that was our. One-on-one, and it yep. The technology, and the animal exactly. Animal. Um, but in the group context, you know, there wasn't unless they went. You know, maybe made themselves a cup of coffee and did something functional there, but the funding was prohibitive. It had to be a group group context. So unless they're all going to be doing group functional training, so it was very much an impairment um, an impairment model. But I would argue that you have to have that functional retraining in order to get the functional outcomes and get your gas goals. How many people did you have running? An AHA and, uh, a, and a clinician, and we, that meant we needed to be pretty conscious about how we set up the group. So, you couldn't have six really um, high needs patients, so, if they needed lots of specialized seating, etc. So, we we're really conscious of that. Um, our AHA. Um, absolute whiz-bang wasn't to start with was really anti-technology to start with and was a bit like oh, I really want to do this I'm gonna and just loves it now she's just the most pro technology you can imagine but um, to make it affordable for us it had to be too I floated around in the beginning um, because I was a bit nosy about what was happening and you know not also from a training perspective and making sure that um, clinically we were managing the upper limbs properly. So the AHA is really there around making sure the group function's okay, but I would say that you still always need a clinician for the upper limb needs, like we were talking about earlier on. Made it affordable though. Um, And I actually costed this out, the intervention, um, I think a couple of years down the track and it was less than $2 per person. So it's really affordable, that's cheap you know, for people coming in, you know, for that sort of treatment. Um, and we were going to do a socioeconomic analysis, and I'm sure we'll do it once we go back to the data. Uh, but providing it in a group context for us is probably the make or break. You know, we, we just... So many patients, uh, so much to do, we, we really had to look at being quite creative in how we set up our stations. I would also say that when we're talking about the stations, there's probably no reason you couldn't um, it doesn't have to j- just be emerging technologies you could probably have and i've thought about this a really nice functional station where they can do some practicing of stuff like a kitchen area setup you could probably even have like a um an fes station maybe and they could go from one to the other you could be as flexible as you want to be to get your patients through and i would also say it doesn't necessarily all need to be inpatient rehab the patients that we had come through they're a mixture so we currently run might be 10 groups a week it's a really busy clinic and we mix it we have inpatients and outpatients so we were really flexible to meet our staffing needs the needs of the patients to get it up and running so you can you know that's the thing with the action research framework just tweak it as you go along like okay well that's working not getting enough functional retraining let's set up this in the corner wouldn't it be great if we did an fes thing got them really working and then put them on the equipment Oh, I think that would be really hot and and have um, lots of potential. Mm-hmm. Sounds like time management was very efficient. In yeah, um, but it took us a while to tweak it. So just again, bear that in mind. It was it was a little bit of a dog's breakfast to start with, and I'd be the first one to admit that. We had a vision of how it would be, and it just wasn't like that. So the first little while, it was all sorts of dreadful things happening that um, that weren't time efficient. Um, you know the, the process of doing the assessment and working out our, our spreadsheet like oh my god everyone needs to be on this, what are we going to do how are we going to make that work? So I'll, I'll be really honest and say that first 12 months was so much about tweaking it to get it efficient and it is unbelievably efficient now, it just works like clockwork there's no problems but we've got you know we're X number of years down the track so we've tweaked the process to come into the clinic, the spreadsheets um, the eligibility criteria with direct access unit, how we protect time to do the assessments Um, but we gave ourselves permission for it to be messy in that first instance and to be like okay well you know that's fine we'll be collecting data that data wasn't great in the first instance but it found its feet as we went along and we got our systems, the system that suited us um, in our context Um, and it does work very well now and it's incredibly efficient. Um, I just wanted to go back actually to your results. No, no, you don't need to show them because I can remember yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, I think that actually, technology aside, technology as a tool is fantastic. But yep. your results, where you've demonstrated that improvements in upper limb function improve quality of life, yep. is something that's just tremendously exciting yep. and mm. gives justification for further kinds of um, work both with and without technology. I and agree also wondered about some of that cost-effectiveness data into the future, and that, yes, I know we've got this kind of only so many therapists, but actually, if you're looking at quality of life and, mm. your, health and your health service, yep maybe that's where we should be actually putting a whole lot of our funds and so i yeah. think that's really exciting yeah to collect yeah like that. and i'd really like to look at um working further with that, costing it out and and i guess the thing it's important what you said technology or not it really is about the capacity to make some changes with the upper limb and we know we can do that with that sort of intensity and technology is just augmentative it's just doing extra so these were extra sessions for these patients or if they're outside um, you know they may have been having still other sessions in their local community but as being augmented with this practice and that's why we had that change so you know I think it, it is important to collect the data and publish it <laughs> yes. really important because I, I know in here we do some really great local work most of us are you know research based and most of us will do things locally and we'll collect our data you've got to publish it so that we can get this sort of information out there and we can come back and we can say well you know we need these patients coming through rehab they need another trial of rehab because look what you can get I'll just quickly I know I'm conscious of time but I wanted to tell you um, I had patients 20 years post brain injury 20 years and I had massive changes with them so bear in mind 20 years ago, they probably got no upper limb rehab. And we know in, with neuroplasticity, your brain will change to your diet. It's got the capacity to reorganise. If you've got the right environment, the right practice, not everyone will change at the same pace or to the same magnitude, but people should be given, given an opportunity. So upper limb changes 20 years post brain injury. And we've got that data. So, you know, we took in, in, in terms of chronicity, we had really chronic upper limb situations, and we saw some functional improvements. People who came from supported accommodation facilities. And people's cognition changes over the years, sometimes too. Which Absolutely. Happens. Yeah. And I bet you this stuff too. Again, we didn't collect a lot of data. We had the mocker to start with. We didn't uh, use the mocker as an outcome measure. I can tell you now hand on heart we should have collected that data because attention improved sustained attention improved so if i was to do my time again and we can learn from me i would collect that as an outcome data so you know i would look at how the sustained attention changed and also perception so i would do something like um Uh, Trail making, I do trail making pre-post and I can guarantee you now that you would see changes in that, we just didn't collect it. We've got some other data on there, but it's been really difficult, it's all algorithm based and I don't even know what it's about, um, that I'd hoped that we could analyse that showed that patients who initially came with quite a significant visual uh, visual visuospatial neglect, um, we could use the technology to really force them to cross the midline and then we saw a pattern in our heat map data that showed they were to begin with all in this space and then we saw that it changed for them to cross. I mean how cool would that be to, to be able to publish that and show that because we know that um, neglect is one of the most difficult um, impairments to actually remediate in rehab. So again you know, if I had my time again I'd collect data on that. And publish that um, but you know if I had to you know leave a session with anything it would be anyone who's looking at doing anything even if it's one bit of um, equipment collect data even if it's one bit of data even if it's the gas gas analyzers beautifully or the armor um, you know it's it, collect it and and share it share it at your conferences share it publish it because you know, we see some incredible changes, and if we want to be able to argue that we need more time for these patients and more augmenta- augmentative equipment, this is what we need. We need this sort of stuff. And this has come in handy when I have gone for, gone for funding, grant funding and, and local funding. I've been able to say, look, it changes. I'd like you to all join me to thank Helen.